I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Real Water Sports is doing their back to shred sale right now. Up to 60% off site-wide, surfboards included. And that's not just the big international brands. There are Christiansen's in this sale, Rawson's in the sale. $200 off a Christiansen 5-4 fish, $250 off a Christiansen 6-4 longfish, 42% off an IPA Dark Arts Construction, 42% off a 6-0 Rawson Nova Twin. That equates to a savings of $500. So unbelievable deals right now. The sale doesn't last long. I think it's about a week and we're midway through. So they are located in North Carolina, but they will ship you a surfboard anywhere in the world for one flat low fee. And especially during this sale, it ends up being way cheaper than you could purchase it anywhere else. So go to realwatersports.com, click on the back to shred banner, then click onto the surfboards tab to see the surfboards that are on sale. There's also sales going on site-wide for kite surf, foil surf stuff. But if you want a surfboard, now is the time. Go nuts. Realwatersports.com. Thanks. Sunbum.com. I've used Sunbum for long before we started our partnership with them last year, simply because they make the best product formulated for my needs, surfing specifically. I use the mineral sunblock. It doesn't migrate. It's not slippery, so my hands don't slip off my board after I apply it. That's really all I need. But then last year, they sent me a bunch of other stuff, hair care products, skin care products, so not just sun protection, but skin care, and everybody in my family started using it. And all of that stuff is equally as good of quality as the sunblock that I have always loved and trusted. And then just recently, they formulated a brand new Kids Bum product. So the same trustworthy protection, but made so that you can apply it to wet skin. Kids are usually playing longer than SPF 50 will protect them, so this allows you to reapply without having to towel them off first. It's also Sunbum's first ever clear formula, so you don't have to mop around that white lather until it dissipates. They make the Kids Bum in a variety of applicators, a face stick, a spray bottle, and lotion, of course. It's all vegan, cruelty-free, paraben-free, and Hawaiian reef compliant with Act 104. So there's no reason to look anywhere else. Trust the bum. Sunbum's got you covered. Purchase it from your local surf shop, Real Water Sports included. They carry it. Or stock up on sunbum.com, and you will save 15% by using our promo code, which is just our name without a space, Surf Splendor, all one word, to save 15% on sunbum.com. Thank you, Sunbum. We love you. And listeners, enjoy. Here's to now. Here's to now. If you even remotely followed surfing in the late 90s and early 2000s, then you saw the Malloy brothers everywhere. 
They were omnipresent. Every publication, tons of videos, and then DVDs, and omnipresent in terms of everywhere all over the world. They rode the ascent of the high times of the surf business, and in a lot of ways, they probably actually drove a lot of that growth. About 10 years prior, in 1988, world-ranked number three surfer Tom Carroll ushered in the first million-dollar contract, and then two years later, Tom Curran designed a blueprint for how to get paid without ever surfing a contest. He was coming off of his third world title in 1990. He quit contest surfing and expanded the definition of the term, quote, pro surfer. Plenty of surfers before him had been traveling the world searching for surf, and some even actually got paid to do it, but not at a high level of visibility nor income. Rip Curl branded Tom's world exploration as the search, and it created a career path for countless surfers to follow in the coming decades. Of course, magazines played a huge role in documenting and sharing these explorations, which made it valuable to the surf brands who saw an opportunity to deliver their advertising well outside the pages of the overt ads that they paid for. Sending surfers to search for perfect waves was infinitely more relatable and aspirational to readers of surf mags than trying to surf to a criteria with a jersey on. So they put some stickers on those boards, had them wear the branded wetsuits and clothing, and that equated to immeasurable influence. And everything, by the way, boomed. Bob Hurley was the CEO of Billabong USA, and so he swooped up all three Malloy brothers, then brought them with him as part of the founding team of surfers when he launched Hurley International. And the Malloys were a gift for any brand, poster children. They were great looking, super fit, talented, interesting, and the surf media, to their credit, leaned into each brother's unique character rather than homogenizing the trio into a singular unit. Each brother followed their own career path, even though they often shared the same roster of sponsors. We actually had Dan Malloy on this show back in 2014, and then Keith on in 2017. And so today, I am thrilled to bring you part one of a two-part conversation with the eldest brother, Chris. We discuss his surfing, his filmmaking, growing up on a farm, and continuing that family tradition on a farm today which is exactly where I found him, off a winding road in the rural, rolling agricultural land a few miles from the coast in central California. Entering the Iron Gate, I followed a single road over a creek, through a few hills, up onto the mesa, where, overlooking his 150 acres, Chris had poured a slab of concrete and built a dream home for his family. They raise animals, grow vegetables, and that's where we recorded this conversation in his kitchen at the beginning of April, 2023. My name is David Scales for Surf Splendor, and I hope you enjoy my conversation with Chris Malloy. Bus boy's younger brother. When he drinks, he talks too much. He seemed to know the people, but at a quarter to three, well, I could see he's a little bit touched. Actually, was thinking, said everything out loud, if I was asking Jamie about contest wins, yeah, well, and it's and, and we've been ingrained as surfers to um, right. Our job as a surfer in the limelight is to um, show the dream, mm -hmm. right? 
you know, uh, Andy Irons, ODs, he's been clearly fucked up for a decade, and his sponsors were like, but let's just show the dream. The dream. It's okay. It's okay. Show the dream. Until they could, until they could find a way to make the, 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 the struggle um, get a lot of attention, then, then what else are we going to do at that point? I mean, you know. The, the struggle's more interesting. The struggle is more interesting. Yeah. I think the struggle's more relatable. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, well, where, where I would like to enter our conversation, I hear you and your brothers talking a lot about your dad's influence. Yeah. In your lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious to know more about your dad and how those things became passions for him. Mm-hmm. How did he end up in Ohio? What are his parents like? All that yeah. sort of stuff. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I'm, my dad was a, a real, a serious influence on, on my brothers and I. Um, his uh, his mother was first generation, so she came over from Ireland on the Lusitania. Yeah, I made her way, I believe, through Kentucky, and then ended up in California. She lived to be ninety nine. Yeah, she had nine kids. Kind of the classic American dream, you know? Crazy. Yeah. And then she was married to an Irishman. <laughs> Emmett Malloy was his name. And he was a just the classic sort of um, everything from race cars to bulldozers to having nine kids and was very interested in the, in, in horses. And, and um, you know, the family talks about a period of time where he wasn't around. Uh and they were pretty sure he was riding the rails, riding the, you know, because anytime somebody called a guy living on the street a bum, he would get very mad and say that he's just traveling. He's just traveling. And they, so that's kind of a family legend. I don't know if he, they say he got to California that way. Okay. Through riding, riding boxcars. So um, it's a fun part of family lore. That's interesting. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and, yeah, my dad was this uh, the seventh, seventh of nine, and they grew up in Topanga Canyon. Yeah, so when you imagine in the fifties, uh, my dad was born in forty seven. So in the fifties, growing up on a on a ranch, little ranch, I think it was a hundred. It was a quarter section, so one hundred sixty four acres. In the in the fifties in Topanga was you know a pretty special place to be, and. Uh, and so he was ingrained with that as a kid. Um, you know, looked up to his big brothers and sisters. And then he would make it down the canyon and got fascinated with um, the wave out front, right? <clears throat> and the Signs Brothers and um, Fitzpatrick and, and, you know, Dora might come through and Lance Carson and all those guys. So he got pretty excited about surfing. So... He would tell stories about, you know, they'd be showing horses and then they would be, um, you know, uh, cleaning stalls for his big brother, Uncle John, and uh, or Uncle Tom. And and then he would, you know, when he could, he'd sneak down the canyon and, 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 and surf. So it's interesting how that sort of blueprint is sort of still kind of ingrained in us, you know. Um, and yeah, and then he, he was just, my dad was just a working guy, you know, he, 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 
he lived in Hawaii. There was a little college um, called Monoolu on Maui, and he got a, some kind of, you know, he got through college. His dad wanted him to, um, and he was set there, and he was doing some groundskeeping uh, for Haleakala Ranch. Um, and there's a little house that's still there on the very, very top of Makoao. Uh, that's where I was conceived. And yeah, really? and he was set to be, he was set to do that. And he wanted to work his way up, um, uh, um, up on Haleakala. And then my grandfather died. So before I was actually born, um, he moved back to help work on the, on the family construction company. Um, and then, and then sort of never, never went back. Okay. So I always felt like I kind of got robbed. Like I wanted to be born in Hawaii. I wanted to grow up in Hawaii. And so that sort of led to, um, you know, the second I turned 18, I'd saved up two grand, you know, sweeping Almeric shaping bays and working in his store for Terry, his Al's wife and Heidi and, and Britt Merrick. Um, you know, grew up around that whole crew we had, you know, it was, it was the Currens and the, the Brown family and, um, Jamie George, Pete Rocky, Bobby Goodman, you know, um, Andrew Blatt, like the list goes on of, of Morgan Mines, all these kids that, and, and we grew up and Sonny Garcia would come into town or Joey Jenkins and, we would do these little like mock heats, <clears throat> backside Rincon, and uh, Tommy would come into town, or Sean Thompson, and Terry Merrick, Al's wife, she would put on these big spaghetti feeds, you know, and I mean, it was amazing, there'd be, you know, 20 of us kids, Kim Merrick would, would be there, and and Al was, it was kind of pre-VHS video, I mean, it, those existed, but we didn't really do a lot of filming. So Al would just sort of hold court. Al, we'd all eat and talk about the day and surfing and and um, and surfboards. Yeah, we talk about surfboards, and you know, and then and then Kelly shows up. You know, we had got word from a, a man named Scott Thomas, beautiful man, and he looked out for us kids and worked with Al. And he's like, there's a kid on the East Coast that's, that's um, next level boys. And he's talking to, at this point, Chris Brown and Jamie George, best surfers at that age I'd ever seen in my life, 10 times better than me and my brothers. And he said, there's, there's a kid. He surfs as good as Tommy. And we were like, Tommy then and it still is, you know, such a god to us. And we were like, bullshit. And he's like, watch. So Kelly shows up and we're just... It was like this excitement, but also this sadness, because you're like, I'm never, ever, ever. I mean, it was crazy. It really was crazy. Like when Kelly showed up, he was 14, 15. And um, it, it really changed everybody's surfing. It really did. It elevated all of our surfing. We changed how we surfed. We were trying to, I mean, we were coming off growing up watching Rabbit and, and Mike Ho and uh, Mark Richards and those lines they were drawing, you know, and then it was evolving into Tommy, you know, and then, and then, and then Aki, you know, it was basically our whole world was Tommy and Aki, you know, at that point. And then, um, Kelly shows up 
he's taking this sort of, he was very, you know, t- his biggest influence was Tommy, but he was adding Kelly to it at, at 14, 15. And it was just a game changer for all of us, you know? Um, How was it different? Just everything. It was just, just the bottom terms were crisper and different. And, you know, the, hit that Kelly hook, you know, and just the way he would do, he would just do things on a wave that like, were just ridiculous you know, in terms of like, you know, he would get a wave that should be an eight or something. And then he would go to the inside and literally like splash water, make, make himself get barreled. Like when there was nothing, <laughs> just that thing that he's done to this day where you're like, okay, enough already. Like, you know, and so it was great for our surfing. Um, we traveled with him so much to so many good waves and it was inspiring and it elevated our surfing. If I was going to, the negative part was no matter how well you surfed, you know, later in the years, though, every session was videoed and you'd get back to the boat or to land and you'd watch that session that night, right? You know, like Taylor Steele or, um, you know, whoever was filming and you'd watch it. And so the rest of my life, no matter how well I surfed, I was so depressed at the end of the day because you're watching your surfing next to Kelly's and you've just, you just, you're just like, there's just, you know, and, but it inspired us. Yeah. The That's other negative thing is that we tried to ride the boards he was riding. I was just going to ask about yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's almost like if you're all focused on yeah. trying to do what that guy's doing, you're never going to do it as well as that guy's doing, but you could just focus on your own thing. Right. You know, but everything got so homogenized there with boards specifically. It did. Yeah. And I, I will say, I'll, I mean that Kelly would come in from a surf as, as a 15 year old and grab a pencil and paper and draw and write dimensions and stare at a surfboard. Like the other, all of us guys, for the most part, were pretty much just mouth breathing it, man, knuckle dragging it. Like we were just like, oh, that looks good. It feels good under my arm. Jamie was a little more tuned in um, and Chris, but they, uh, Kelly was in the, we would go with Al and, when he'd shape our boards, you know, um, quite often we would. And um, I'll admit, like, I was like, that looks amazing, Al. Like, maybe that bump squash, we could, like, leave a little more bump. Or, like, I don't know, just leave the bottom flat. I don't understand these just different stuff you're doing. And I, because I just liked basic, you know. Kelly would be in there, like, every pass of a rail. I mean, it was amazing. In retrospect, at the time, I was like, I don't know. Kelly's super into his boards, I guess. <laughs> and, then, and then it would, like, you just watch the progression. And then the negative part was that we followed. Yeah. And so I was, like, I I would say my brothers and I, especially my brother Keith and I, like, we were bigger, you know, pushing 200 pounds, and we were, um, you know, watching Aki mostly, who is just, like, you know, to this day my favorite, you know, three fin surfer ever and uh he rode foam yeah boxy ass you know when rusty was building his boards man like that was just it was just it was a man surfing and um sunny as well um donovan frankenrider liked foam he didn't he didn't follow the glass slipper 
Donovan's crazy underrated, by the way. He's an incredible. I could go on and on how well that guy surfs. Um, but uh, so we, I spent the prime years of my life riding way, way smaller boards than I should have with way too much rocker. You know, the the good news is we were lucky enough to be riding perfect waves at that time. Yeah. So those boards, if you could get in, you you they were really they worked really well, but. Um, so there's a clearing wind right now. It's blowing wow. like 35 knots outside. See that? Oh, well, good thing we did it too. Yeah, good thing we decided to do this indoors. Yeah, <laughs> I, that's what I said. If we go outside, there's gonna be an animal or a rain or something. So. Yeah. So um, we all learn, and meanwhile, Sunny and Aki just stayed on 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 proper foam and did some of the best hacks of all time, you know, and so. But I figured it out, you know, yeah. and I got back on on foam. And yeah, I'm a notorious slow paddler. Um, for somebody who was paddling all day every day, like, yeah. I just didn't have that magic that some to get into waves like a Kalani or a Kelly or you know those those kind of guys. So I just was like, I I would just get what I could. I heard that your dad was building boards back in the day. When you were yeah. growing up, yeah, he was he wasn't a board builder. He wasn't he you know he didn't he didn't have um, it was you know he didn't even write his name on on stringers. But he he was he was always uh, messing around with foam and <clears throat> and uh, would he had a ding shop for all us kids. So free ding repair from Mike Malloy for for a long time. Nice. So he was he was putting boards back together for for the whole everybody in Pierpont and whoever needed a board fixed. And, um, and then he got in later in the later years, he got into, um, we got those blueprints that, uh, in popular mechanics, uh, that, uh, via Tom, uh, Tom Blake. And, uh, so we started doing those together okay. as a family, that thing right there, that 13 footer is one of the ones my dad built. No um, way. Yeah, yeah. And we, we had a contest. We'd do an annual contest. So they weren't wall hangers. They're all been ridden. Yeah. Some have ended up on walls. I think Pesman has one. Okay. And Bob Hurley has one. And, yeah, we probably made 20 of them. And it was just a great, you know, go out in the shed. And, and um, you know, we're not woodworkers and we're not board builders. But with the blueprints... You know, we we Dan would be there, and there'd probably be a beer, and my dad would be smoking, and we just had a great opportunity to bullshit. Yeah, and even if you're not board builders, your dad seemed like yeah. he was capable of working with his hands on anything. Yeah, right? anything, anything. So I'm curious though, as you're explaining that um, those early days with Merrick, kind of uh, being the person that everybody centered around building boards for everybody, yeah. you guys are coming from the farm. Did you feel uh, culturally disconnected from the beach and yeah. that whole surf scene? Yeah, we did. We we did, and and what we grew up on was it's just a few acres, and we had you know barns and horses, and we were you know going to Brannings and um, and we lived right at the base of the Los Padres National Forest. But we didn't grow up on some big farm or ranch. We we were that's our cousins the Russells were over in Cuyama, and we were out there and. We just had a little humble spot there, you know, as part of an old ranch house that was part of 
the east end of Ojai, a big section there that had been whittled away, and we were kind of the last ranch house standing. Um, now that area in Ojai is um, populated, you know, and built built out pretty good. But yeah. in 70, 73, it was pretty special. <laughs> and it's 30 minutes from the beach. It's there's close, yeah. But... <clears throat> yeah, we did feel like, I mean, the first contest we entered was at California Street, and uh, Keith was in tears after the event because all the kids were making fun of him because he was on a single fin, you know? Like, oh, really? Yeah, yeah. And and we were riding. My dad didn't know how to put us on anything different, so the boards we picked up were, you know, not up with the times, you know? I think he got second in the event to a guy named Sean Michaels, and and uh, his best wave, he just did a cheater five all the way across the <laughs> inside C Street, and the judges were like, "This kid's classic," and they gave him a score. Wow! So we were, and we were self conscious about it for sure. Yeah, you know, we'd show up in a flatbed, my dad's smoking and and has beer, and and um, yeah, when we told him we were serious about surfing, you know, he's like, "What do you do?" And we're like, "We get." surfboard you know sponsor and he's like well who and we we're like well Al Merrick's the best and he's like get in the truck true story he's like get in the truck where is it and it's at Santa Barbara well, we found the store and my dad walked in he's like well, how do these boys get on the program here we you know that was that like blunt <laughs> and we're like walking behind him and they kind of giggled and they're like well we do a team workout um uh Kim Robinson runs it and Scott Thomas and then Al's there and you guys can come you want you know we have these funny surfboards and like jamie george just blowing the back out of waves left and right you know like sponsored and everything and we were definitely self-conscious about that and they kind of put up with us but we wouldn't leave we kept going back and we went back for a long time and then i'll never forget you know kim and al were like hey we'll you know if the boys want to help sweep you know shaping bays and you know we'll give them a deal on boards Mm. And it was a huge moment for us. I'll never forget it. We were Santa Claus Lane. And uh, and then, you know, we sort of assimilated. Like, we were, like, we started dressing like the surfers. And, you know, like, we were watching Tommy get his new Rip Curl wetsuits that were bright, bright orange. And, you know, at the time, in my mind at least, it was like, I loved what my dad did. And I was so proud of him, you know running ex- excavators and dozers and all that stuff. But I didn't I didn't want to do that, you know. I didn't yeah. so it was like if Tommy's wearing a fluorescent wetsuit, then I am too, man. Like I I see a little window of a chance at this, you know. And so looking back on it, it's pretty funny how like we went from, you know, like that sort of life and then just jumped into the surfing and then, of course, it was the 80s, so it was just like, like, I remember, like, I surfed a PSAA, and Richie Collins, like, gave me his webs, you know, the webs, the oh, yeah. gloves with the, yeah. and I and I just wore those things proudly, man, like, and then and it was like, it, and it was double weird, because in Oxnard, Silverstrand, Ventura, all the way up to Point Conception, like, none of the, none of the boys wanted to see that shit. Right. So we're already fish out of water. We're already sort of outsiders coming into it, and then we, then we act accordingly. And now the, the that other crew that you know had accepted us, the black suit, you know, white surfboard guys are like, "What the fuck are you guys doing?" And we're like, 
I don't know. I always, I always held that sort of like a little bit of an outsider uh, feeling. Mm. And um, my friend Paul Hatter recently was like, you guys are hilarious. You faked it as surfers came in, like got to do the whole deal. And like, and, and then now you're back to how yeah. you started out. And I I was like, I never did think about that, but we, we faked it as surfers for a long time. <laughs> well, you entered at a point where there wasn't really a path prior. Like the yeah. whole thing blew up right when you guys kind of entered yeah. the scene in terms of, being able to have a professional surf career mm-hmm. without just doing contests, sure. you know, to make a living. Sure. And so yeah. I feel like it was all timing. Yeah. I mean, was, I guess it could happen nowadays, but it couldn't have happened prior. It was all timing. It was all timing. And, and um, like, so I was a terrible heat surfer. And other, so between my, my two brothers, Keith and, and my youngest brother, Dan, like I had the least surfing ability. Um, and, and, um, and then Keith's a, a, a a darn good surfer and then Dan, Dan I believe is is a real gifted surfer so I had to hustle extra hard and then Keith Keith was great he made it on the tour one year and um and then Dan Dan's a um yeah I mean they're both good surfers and Dan has a uh, I would say a, a gift you know and he's a good surfer and 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 so we kind of were blown away with the opportunity you know it kind of happened it, like it wasn't so really supposed to for us and and you know it was bob bob hurley and paul gomez came in to us and said listen guys any money you're winning which is you know slim you're spending it to go to new guinea or to chile or to scotland and that's we can tell that's what you guys love and you like big waves you know and, and like you sincerely like to do that and um we're just going to pay for you guys to do that. It's better for us. And you guys are happier. And it was Paul and Bob. They just said, go. And that was Billabong at the time. It was Billabong at the time. And, and it was like surreal because, you know, we would, we would like spin the globe, you know, for, for a long time. What age were you when that Billabong relationship started? When it started, um, I would have been 20. You had already lived in Hawaii then. I was living in Hawaii. Okay. I was so let's start with that. Uh, what was the motivation to go to Hawaii and how did that all happen? I mean, and I'm thinking too, and you're pitching it to your dad. Mm-hmm. I mean, how did he receive it? Did he see the potential for a surf career? Could he support that? So I was, I was playing baseball and I have a very, my, my family, the Malloys are very involved in, in sports and baseball. And I have an uncle that played in a World Series and, and a cousin both wore World uh, Series rings at, at Thanksgiving dinner. So um, early on I was playing in small schools um, and pitching and doing really well with that in small schools, you know. And they were like, oh, here's your chance for college. And and um, when I – but I knew down deep I didn't have what it take. Like my cousin taught me a bunch of junk, you know, and I was getting through – Kids hadn't seen that, so it looked like I was doing pretty good. But I, I didn't have the heat to. I knew I wasn't gonna make it. I also didn't really have the, the, the a huge drive for that. But surfing, I did. Yeah. So it was, yeah, it was a conversation over just he and I, and I said, I want to, I want to do the surf deal. I'm gonna go for it. And he, um, <laughs> he goes, well, okay. Well, if you're gonna do it, you know, do it, and. 
and he lit a smoke. I'll never forget. And he just says, um, so you're not good as good as the other guys. Cause he'd seen me compete a lot by that, by then. And I was like, fuck. Okay. <laughs> and, and without, if you knew my dad, you know, you, you, you knew that like, I'm telling, I'm, this is how it went, you know? And he, and he said, you're not as good as those guys. And I said, yeah, no. And he goes, you're going to just have to try three times as hard. And I said, okay, deal. And that was our conversation. And it was really a, a gift to me because whenever I hit a wall or it looked like this isn't going to work, I remembered what he said. It was like, oh, I'm ready for this brick wall. He told me. Mm. So I've only tried once. He's like, you're going to have to, he said, you're going to have to try three times as hard. And so I, you know, I, and then the, it just was the timing of the of the industry and the and Bob Hurley and Paul Gomez's sort of vision and let, letting us go and I like to surf that, you know that's the thing is I like to surf I was gonna surf no matter what every day mm-hmm. and I was gonna go like see I was gonna chase Brock Little and and Todd Chester out to the reefs you know and at that time <clears throat> thank God there was no jet skis and that kind of thing. So it was really, it was like, it was like at that time in the early nineties, it was, it was Brock and Chester, Shane, Ross Williams, Keone Watson, Noah Johnson, Mark Fu, um, this boogie boarder from Connie Ahoy, um, named Kelly, um, Kirk Bierke, um, some Aussies would come over, Joel Fitzgerald and that other goofy foot kid, I remember, I forget his name. And then a few other guys, I'm sure I'm leaving some out, but it, but you would be calling guys to go on the on those okay. days because you, you wanted another guy to surf with, you know. And so, and it would usually end up being four or five guys maybe, you know, and the best waves to this day I've ever seen in my life. You really? Know? Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and so that was i was that's what i was wanting to do you know and um, so you go to hawaii yeah when you're 17 i was 18 yeah 18 okay yep and obviously you didn't have billabong you didn't have the backing so you were just what were you doing for work how did you pay for your lifestyle? yeah so i was um let's see i lived in my car for a little bit and then um i stayed on the east side with um tamaya perry yeah um, him and his mom, they were gracious enough to keep me for a while. And I'd saved up two grand, and, and at that time, two grand can get a kid a long way, you know. Um, and then I... Um, were your brothers with you? No. Okay, no, no, solo mission. All. Yeah, yeah, they're in high school at the time, you know. And then the Johnsons let me live there for a second, and then um, I upgraded to, uh, there's a, gu- a guy, real real nice guy named Johnny Theodore that lived at Sunset. And he had a walk-in closet that was killer. And I got it 70 bucks a month. And, um, and I had a little car that I had used, like Toyota something. And um, I made that. Um, and I was getting boards. So um, uh, I would... So I basically would, um, I would, uh, I'm, I could make it on that, and then, um, and then I would sell a board here and there. Who were you getting sorry, boards from? Sorry, Al. <laughs> was it? Oh, so Merrick was he well, making them here? He was still. Them? I was still getting Al's boards. That was my. That was so great because even though I wasn't a paid surfer, like I was riding beautiful surfboards that worked really well, 
and I was starting to make a little dent in the thing, you know, and, and, um, you know, I was surfing in any contest they'd let me into and sort of made a little presence, I guess. And then Chesser and Brock and those guys took me under their wing, uh, Ross, Ross Williams and, and the Hill family, the, the, the legendary house of pain. I started hanging tough there, you know, and I was just, I was just riding coattails. Um, and then I went to, uh, in Pearl City there, I went to Leeward College for a couple semesters, and so I told my mom, I told my mom, I'm going to school full-time, can you send me a hundred bucks? So she's, so, so I definitely called, and I wouldn't call my dad, I called my mom, and we kept him a secret from him, and there was definitely a couple money orders that, that came through that got me through. The, but I was very, um, I was, they knew me first name basis at the pawn shop in Wahiwa. Oh my God. Because <laughs> I was sponsored by Quicksilver um, for clothes. Okay. So I'd get my boxes and just go straight to like wherever, whoever would, I mean, buy them. I was selling Quicksilver clothes and CI surfboards. And all I would just do is keep, you know, the ones I absolutely needed. And that was getting me through. It was killer. It was a yeah. great deal. And I don't think, I think in the in the in the end, I like it wasn't really disrespecting the guys that were supporting me because I was able to reciprocate in my own way, you know. And I was giving it all I had, you know, to sort of surf pipeline and yeah, you're developing the craft. Yeah, and then um, so you developed a passion for big waves too, though, right? Yeah, I mean that's where that yeah, happened. That was my and to this day that was my my favorite part of my surfing life, you know. Yeah, is is those 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 uh those those that period of time where we had those those was about five waves um that we had and um it was you know no support um which made the experience that much more rich sure and and, and I dare wonder. i say like you know i will say it. i'm i'm fucking 51 now i'll say like looking back on those were spiritual events you know, I wonder they were, we talk about it on the podcast lots of times about how, um, early access, you know, for kids nowadays mm -hmm. does, uh, maybe potentially harm their development and growth as a surfer. And it like, it gives you mm -hmm. the opportunity to resource or the access to resource and opportunity gives you a certain amount of, um, opportunity that you wouldn't have otherwise, Yeah, but it's almost, mm -hmm in place of developing the grit that you actually need to do the yeah. thing in the end. So it kind of interrupts the development process to a degree. Yeah. You know, I've thought a little bit about that. Um, and I, you know, I, I really, where I live and kind of my daily, you know, life, um, I'm, I'm not really, I don't know. I don't know these kids, you know, I don't know. I don't really spend time with them. I've spent a good amount of time with, Kolohe Andino and Connor Coffin and but after that you know like like I'll text with those kids like it's so fun you know like the the and they have a deep understanding of what was before them like yeah. those two for example two, yeah. um but I could I mean, see yeah you, you there's definitely I definitely wonder you know I wonder I wonder if the kids are having that same experience uh and they're able to go and surf for a week, surf something new or surf something that scares them and be able to not, um, 
lament the fact that nobody saw it, you know? Right. You know, as uh, it's, it's, you know, like I, I imagine there's some people know me just because my brothers and I were very, you know, very um, present <laughs> in the surfing publications um, and chastised or, or made fun of or whatever you want to call it because we were so present in in the pages of the surfing magazines and and uh, what I you know my thing is like absolutely if you want to call me a photo slut then I'll take it I, I absolutely but you had three kids that were either gonna go drive a dozer for their dad or we wanted to surf every day anyway and fucking Rocky Point was a really fun right and a really fun left and um we lived right there yeah at that time and it was like it was like hell yeah and it, it was a perfect scam. It worked well, great. <laughs> it, the timing was right for Bob to be able to come in and be like, hey, we're just going to allow you guys to pursue your exploration mm-hmm. interests mm-hmm. and empower you to do it. Yeah. But it is the work ethic that you you grew up Absolutely. with on the farm. Absolutely. And also your dad saying, you're not as good, so try three times harder than them. Yeah. So when you got that opportunity, that yeah. work ethic, you couldn't have exploited the opportunity without the work ethic, essentially. Yeah, absolutely. Which so, I don't see everybody else has nowadays. And, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's, and we, yeah. I'm not, now, I'm not trying all these to, years later, I kind of... I, I can sort of look back and see it for what it is. And, you know, we surf, we grew up surfing Emmawood, um, which is not a great wave. Uh, and it's always muddy water and it's right by a freeway overpass, but we thought it was heaven. Mm. So you put us in Hawaii. I mean, it is heaven, you know, and especially in the early nineties, you could still surf by yourself, you know, and uh, if you wanted to. And um, that, it was yeah it was it was just a little bit of a different time but surfing was blowing up things were changing and um uh, but you know i visit the north shore from time to time and i kind of watch the the climate in the surfing culture as it shifted and yeah all i all i can say is like there's there's the obvious stuff you know where the kids are being so groomed and um, they most really good kids have a little entourage with them at all times, and all I hope is that they do get those opportunities to go surfing, just to go surfing, and 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 um and spend that day or that week or that month or that year and just go surfing. You know, if, yeah. I hope that for them, but you know they're going to do some crazy stuff. I mean, now now you can get in a bind and you got a little. Got a little button you can push on your chest and it takes you to the top, and there's a guy waiting for you with a, you know, um, trademark beverage for you right there, and like that's that looks pretty fun, you know. <laughs> we missed that. We we missed that, and we lost some heroes and friends uh, in that time, you know, and that and that, that that sucks, you know. I mean, if I could have had a float j- jacket for. Chester, you know, or if he could have had one, you know, and Donnie Solomon and Mark Fu, those were the guys we were surfing those reefs with, and I wish they had had that, you know, I, I do. And yeah, it's a different time. Um, getting the opportunity to explore the world mm-hmm. and supported by Billabong and other sponsors. Yeah. Um, what was your interest in the world at that point? I mean, mm-hmm. it, yeah. not every, so I, my parents invited me to go on a family trip to Europe when I was 16. Yeah. I just thought it was incredible. I'm like, I cannot wait mm-hmm. to go on this trip. And I told my buddies in high school, I'm going to Germany. I'm going to Austria. They're like, 
are there waves there? Yeah. And I'm like, no, what yeah. do you, it's not even coastal. Right. And they're like, why would you go? Yeah. I'm like, so I can explore the world. Right. You know? What was your interest in world exploration at that point? And did you have any awareness of where was? Yeah. So I grew up in, in you know, so Ojai, California, which Ojai is talk about change. You know, it was a very different place in the late seventies and early eighties, pretty incredible place. Um, and my dad would would take us down to Mexico, and that was like the first time I had really had a taste of travel because it's so so different, you know. Baja, yeah, road trips. And to so Baja. I kind of fell in love with travel through that, and then I had big dreams to go to Hawaii, and then my first where travel really sank in is something I wanted to spend a lot of my life doing was. Um, um, going to Indonesia, you know, and just, you know, for me, I was always very interested in growing up Catholic. I was always interested in, um, sort of spirituality and, um, I had found some issues with Catholicism that really bugged me. And I, my dad, old school American, you know, like he, and so I was not exposed anything other than the, you know, the Catholic thing was, um, just super seen as foreign and odd and, you know, but I had so many questions because it wasn't really working for me. And so when I went to Indonesia and I was able to, um, you know, like be introduced um, to different, you know, like Hindu and then I started looking into Buddhism and, and Islam and all these different things and just kind of being like, wow, there is so much to look at human history and how spirituality and 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 then religion comes in and kind of just get to see everything and learn more about all these different things and it's not like I became you know I didn't I didn't get to the point where I was like wanting to convert to anything but it opened my eyes really you know when I was it was really a great education you know to sit sit with the the Buddhist in in Burma, you know, and go to the to what in Japan and and Indonesia and just see how people lived and what was working for them, what wasn't, and learn the history of how they sort of all um, their their effect on on culture and civilizations and all that stuff. So that became like one really like interesting facet for me and travel so it's just people cultures their faiths their way of you know to be able i really saw the agrarian aspect of the places that i went as super interesting the fishing and the farming and the and livestock and all that so when when i went somewhere like it was really there was so much you know there was like getting to see new waves and that was our at that time you know, it was prior to Google Maps. Mm. So you're, you know, like, could go hang out with Jim Banks, you know. I went and hung out with Jim Banks and Morris Cole. And later on, you know, the Wayne Lynches and Jerry Lopez's and picked their brain on ideas. And, like, there was always more, you know, in these places, like the Philippines or something. And then to be like, let's go, let's go. You know, I got a, the, you know, you get like a, an idea of a place and people go, yeah, it'll, it's, there's surf there for sure. We got this one spot, you know, like, you know, cloud nine in the Philippines, but that's one wave and there's, you know, so then you end up 
getting a boat and spending two weeks, you know, going from island to island and just finding, I mean, to this day, there's so much left, so much left. And that became incredibly accessible and we got to see a lot of stuff, a lot of really good waves that don't have a name and haven't been probably surfed since we were there. And, and, but really it was uh, equatorial. So w- there were so many waves I felt that were unsurfed that were in warm water and cheap um, to, to live in and to get boats and go places. And then, and then it was, I felt like towards the end of the, um, like the mid, by like 96 and stuff, the, there was a lot of stuff happening in the, in, on the equator or, you know, in the, in the warm tropical zones. And so that's when we started to go to Scotland and Ireland and Chile and, and, you know, I even, you know, I went to Antarctica, you know, I was like, let's like, I, the wetsuits got better. Yeah. You know, wetsuits got better and, um, they were really, I didn't mind the cold. You know, and so we started doing that stuff and, and uh, being around snow and surf at the same time. And um, I started to hang out a little bit with Yvonne Chenard. So he, he started a company called Patagonia and, um, you know, getting more about that relationship with Yvonne in just a minute. Wavekey.com. Brad's just coming to the end of his month long residency at Niyama in the Maldives. I've been watching him on Instagram, seeing swells kind of come and go. It's head high for a couple of days, then it's waist high for a couple of days, but still always flawless conditions. And it reminded me that watching pro surfers on the internet doesn't fully showcase the greatest strength and the greatest differentiator of wave key. Seeing Taro do his thing or the Coffin Brothers do it is certainly the prettiest and probably the most aspirational showcase of the program, but the biggest unlock for the program is in small, gutless surf. Of course, I want to surf well in good surf too, but that really only represents 10%, maybe, probably less of my total surf time, the vast majority of my time, I'm surfing low energy, shoulder high surf. And so improving your fundamentals allows you to tap into that energy, find speed, find drive in conditions that were previously inaccessible. So for me, this means that I get to surf down the beach by myself. It's always more crowded by the pier where the waves are better, but now I'm seeing opportunities down the beach. More waves, more fun, unlocked thanks to WaveKey. The program is designed for you to do at your own pace, at home, on land, so that you can maximize enjoyment of your limited time in the water. The tutorials are all hosted by Brad Gerlach himself, and they're really designed for any and every level of surfer. And his clients are, in fact, novices and world tour pros and everything in between. So check it out for yourself. Key, by the way, is spelled K-I. So go to wavekey.com. You could sign up monthly just to test it out, or you could sign up for a year, you'll save some money, and then our promo code will actually save you 20% off whether you do monthly or yearly. And our promo code is all one word, Splendor 20 the number 20, Splendor 20 I've posted it on our website so that you could just copy and paste it for ease. And then of course, follow at WaveKey on Instagram. Tons of insights, many tips, plenty of comedy as well. It's a great follow. 
And um, I just think it's a great gift to surfing and to all of us. So thank you, Brad. Wavekey.com. Enjoy. When you're hiring for a small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. And there's no faster or effective way than through LinkedIn jobs. Your time and capital are precious, and there is a powerful resource that can help you focus on what you're good at and integrate people into your team seamlessly to help grow your business. LinkedIn Jobs has created the tools to find the right professionals for your team efficiently and for free. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. Everyone is already on LinkedIn with their resumes and references, and now LinkedIn has designed a hiring platform to connect you with candidates specifically qualified for the job that you post about. More than a billion professionals meticulously organized to connect people by skill set to help us all advance our position. 2.5 million businesses already use LinkedIn for hiring, and 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. It's that fast, easy to use, and effective. LinkedIn Jobs can help you write job descriptions, filter the right person to you, and give you the tools to help you interview them like a pro. LinkedInjobs.com surf is where you go to post your job for free. Yes, totally free. That's linkedinjobs.com slash surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you will hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. I started to hang out a little bit with Yvonne Chouinard. So he he started a company called Patagonia and... um, you know, getting, you know, his stories and, and, um, how did you meet? Well, we, we, he's, he's Ventura and I'm Ojai. So I grew up in Ventura, Ojai. And, um, he was, I would always go into his, his little shop there in Ventura. And by, if I was going to Ireland or to Scotland or wherever, I would buy Patagonia stuff and then, you know, wear my other stuff over the top of it, right? But that was the stuff that was working. And then he had this little library. Um, and I, I found myself buying all... So the, the library in the store was copies of all the books he had in his own library at home. I started reading all that stuff, and I, and it really had a big effect on me. What kind of stuff? Uh, Were they travel books, or was it literature? It, it was literature. Okay that all involved some sort of travel, like um, just getting exposed to like 
you know, Aldo Leopold and, and, and really, you know, Muir and, um, reading books like, you know, Deep Ecology and, um, and then, you know, Yvonne's approach to, you know, the, the big walls and those first ascents, um, you know, and I became almost like, I got nerdy about climbing, even though I wasn't a climber, you know, studying Royal Robbins and Chuck Pratt and all those guys and what they were doing. Because there was a similarity, right? They, they were climbing stuff that hadn't been climbed at that time. And, and um, they were making their own gear, like figuring it out themselves. And they were doing stuff that definitely could have killed them, you know. And um, so, I f so I would be surfing around Yvonne, you know, at, at the Point Breaks in Ventura and friends of friends. And next thing you know, we're, you know, we're sitting there on his front porch talking about the woes of the world <laughs> and, and uh i was doing you know surfing films at the time and we had a lot in common you know it would be years before we'd i'd actually um work with yvonne at at and for patagonia yeah but uh yeah he had a big influence on kind of his his um, view of the world mm -hmm. which i think has changed a lot actually over the last 20 years yeah patagonia is definitely a different um thing than it started out to be um but Everything changes, so that's yeah. well. It's good. bigger than you could ever imagine that it would have been, you know. Yeah, like yeah. Um, but back to kind of early days of traveling, you know, you had this broad view of the world, and you were talking about your dad's view. Were you able to bring some of that home and share that with him? That passion for travel and the passion for exploration. And did yeah. he ever? Did you ever? Did he ever travel with you? Um. So yeah, he he's a pretty quiet man, you know. Um, and I think he appreciated our, our, our travels, you know. I think he appreciated it, and he he told us make something out of this, and we were, you know. And he uh, he kind of scratched his head, you know, because he's like, "Geez, why wouldn't you just stay in Hawaii and do that stuff? You know, why do you have to go here, you know, and or there or all these places?" But he was proud of us. My mom told me he was proud of us, you know. So that that meant a lot to me, and I. Uh, we dragged him, my brothers dragged him to Fiji one time, and he, it was him and Druku, you know, the hanging tough. Did he appreciate that? Yeah, I think so. Good. Yeah, he brought back a shell. <laughs> <laughs> I just think about, like, with anybody, but certainly in your guys' relationship, your parents gift you all of these great things, right? And opportunity. Mm -hmm. And then I think of utilizing that opportunity to then come back and share with them mm -hmm. what they weren't able to access on their own uh -huh. is a real gift, you know? And yeah. Um, yeah. He appreciated it. Good. He did. And good. we'd tell him stories. He liked, he'd like to hear stories, you know, and yeah. we'd tell him stories and, you know, Ray Mana, you know, back in the day, you know, he would, so my dad never said, Oh, I love you. You know, I mean, he didn't hug you ever. And, uh, I remember he was he was working on a surfboard there, and I was on the phone with Raymana, and and uh, it was early days when we were we'd go to Tahiti for a summer and sleep on his grandmother's floor, you know, and, and it was just amazing times. And Raymana was really at that time figuring out surfing, you know, and and um, just figured out really quickly <laughs> how to do some amazing things and. Your mom always says, love you, brother. Love you, brother. And so 
I was on the phone with Rimana and we were getting ready to go back to Tahiti, you know. I think it was Sean Briley and Tony Watson. We were, anyway, um, he was like, love you, brother. I'll see you soon. And I'm like, love you, Mana. And I saw my dad just turn and look at me like, the fuck was that? Like, you know what I mean? Like, not mad at me, just confused. Sure. And he didn't say anything. And then Chester died. And he heard some I love yous from, you know, from the boys, you know. And wasn't more than like six months after that, I was leaving for a trip or there was a big swell or something. He's like, all right. So, uh, he was like, all right, boy, love you. And I was like, what? <laughs> and by the way, his back was already, he was already walking right, right, away. Right. So he wouldn't have to make eye yeah, contact. Yeah. But you didn't, you didn't, you know, it's like. I knew exactly how he felt. Of course. Know? No, was, that's not he it. He's dedicated to us more than any dad. It's just, it just not how he was, was raised, you know? So That's exactly the question I was asking, though, because you, through exploring all these people around the world and developing that level of intimacy, let's say, yeah. is a gift back to your dad. Sure. That he wasn't able to access on his own because yeah. the way that he was raised had all of this, you know, sure. um, what, whatever. No, didn't have, didn't have the luxury of that, let's say. Didn't have the luxury of that. And yeah. so you, through the gifts that he provided for you, were able to access a certain luxury that then you could turn back and share with him. So I think that's yeah. beautiful. I think he understood that. Yeah, I think, I think he was, yeah, I never thought of it that way. But yeah, he was, he was, um, you know, he had great stories and, and he was so, I was always like, man, dad, you should, because in those early days in Topanga, there was a crew called the T Topanga Bombers, and they were wild. Like, you know, down the coast, you had Malibu, and that was Hollywood, right? That was yeah. all the all the glimmer and all the heroes, you know? And Topanga was like the freaking underbelly. Like, they, they were rowdy. Like, they mm. were rowdy. My mom, to this day, says it wasn't a surf um, crew. It was a gang. Because they did some, you know, they were in the fast, you know, hot rods. And they were, I think there was, I think, I think there's some family stories to this day. I don't know. I think my dad, you know, got arrested here and there. Oh, and okay. They were, him and the signs boys were doing some stuff. They were, they were, I don't know what they were doing, but, you know, some of those guys went to jail. Some of them are dead. And mm. They were a rowdy crew, you know. Yeah. Um. Back to your timeline and career trajectory. Uh, do you remember when you first developed your interest in filmmaking? Well, my interest in filmmaking was really because I was around what I considered some good, some great filmmakers, you know, um, like Don King, Sonny Miller, Jeff Hornbaker. And because um, they were filming me. And I was watching them, and I would hang quite often with them as they rigged a camera. It was all film at that time, you know. So, and I was just like, and I loved it, you know. And I was, I had grown up, like I mentioned, like, you know, there was a there was a guy that lived in Ojai who's a dear dear family friend named Mike Montgomery, and his son Vaughn and and their family. We were very close. We grew up, um, and and in a little they lived in a little place called foster park which is right where the 33 comes into casita springs there and anyway um he had somehow bootlegged some old surf movies you know and and there was right when vhs came out so we were getting exposed to you know albie falzon and the Witsick brothers and 
and um, of, of course Bruce, you know, Brown and, and getting to see that stuff really early on, you know, in like in the mid eighties, which was early for us. And, and then we had, you know, that at that time when George would come into town, you know, and Greeno would be on a mat, like at the, uh, at, at the Venture overhead, um, innermost limits, you know, like, you know, you'd see, you'd see Bob Duncan and you'd see George. And so we were very, you know, that's, we were around that stuff, you know, and I always really, you know, those surf films were so important to us. Um, and then I, and then I got into photography, um, not as a, photographer but just like i fell in love with like the composition and, um, and light and 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 how like you know i, I got into like you know, henry carte Prisant, sebastian salgado early like experimental stuff um of man ray and all this stuff i really just was super fascinated about and with no intention of ever being involved in it i just like i really liked it and that's what you do when you're a pro surfer you have time to fuck around and go see a experimental film by Man Ray <laughs> and go to, you know, Aberdeen and see a show that Salgado, you know, they've done a, a massive show by Salgado and you're with Ted Grambo and Brad Gerlach and Hans Hagen and there's no swell in Thurso. So, you you know, you go drink really good wine and go to those shows. And so I was like really fascinated and then, in 97, I got hurt surfing pipeline. So I had a year to recover and I called my buddy who ha- who could run a Bolex. And yeah, and then we went and made surf movies and had a blast doing it. Kind of fell in love with it at that point. Um, what was the injury, by the way? How did it happen? <laughs> it was a bad one. I was surfing pipeline and it was like kind of scratching second reef. And that's kind of this, to me, the scariest pipe because it loads up, loads up on the second reef, but doesn't break, and then it hits the boil, and just, just, those are the, just the scary ones, you know? And it was, like, dark, well, was, the sun had just gone down, so it's like that, you know, there's less guys in the lineup, and you're like, okay, if I don't get this one, then I might be, like, paddling in the dark kind of thing. Dave Cantrell was out, I remember him, he helped me, and, um, yeah, I, just I was always frothy and like I would go when it's you know when it's those conditions like you, if you can you don't go on the first wave of the set you know and like you like you go try to get like I mean ideally it's the last wave of the set you know but I would always go on the, anything I could get my hands on so um yeah I went on the first wave of the set it w- and uh, I didn't make the drop okay and um I. I, I penetrated, but then went back over the falls, and then that's and when I did, I hit the reef on my feet, and it put my whole body through my feet. So basically, I blew my ACL, my medial lateral meniscus, everything in my left knee, and um, and my right knee was fucked up. I hit my head, um, and then so I came up, and my leash is on my left foot, and I was riding a seven ten, Bushman, beast of a board that's when we rode yeah big boards at pipeline and um so the next four or five waves just pulled that injured knee out of the socket because my leash was on that foot and i was going to take it off i mean this whole ordeal was five you know five waves so this it didn't happen like boom i got hurt like it was a bit of a saga <laughs> and, and or, uh, yeah and uh so that 
that just kept pulling it out. And I want to take my leash off, but I was sort of going in and out a little bit. And I knew if I took my leash off and I did sort of lose consciousness that um, they couldn't, you know, then they're not going to find you in time. So I'm like, fuck it. I'm going to keep my leash on. And so I made it a lot worse. Yikes. Um, and my, my heel was hitting me in the ass. And I thought I, and the, well, there's blood in the water too. So I thought I compound fractured my femur. Yeah. And I know that those can, you know, you can die from that, you know. So I was pretty, uh, like, I wasn't in a good space at that point, you know. And But the current got pushed me into the channel by gums. Um, and then Dave Cantrell, like, I was just like, hanging on the side of my board just trying to get my air back and I felt around and I'm like oh, I'm gonna be all right you know like and then and then I just kind of like climbed on my board and started paddling in and Dave was I think he was like that's something super wrong here you know and um I'm like I can get in I think and then like I said the lifeguards were gone and uh he helped me up the beach and I went and I I'll never forget I sat <laughs> So Jack Johnson's dad is Jeff Johnson, right? And he was kind of a mentor to us and a classic dad figure. And he always sort of was just shook his head with the, the notion of pro surfing. And he was a woodworker and an old school, you know, he got to Hawaii by sailing there. Wow, I <laughs> yeah, didn't know that. Yeah, and raised, you know, um, PD and Trent and Jack and uh, right there at Pipeline. And they had this beautiful deck, um, and it was well it was just this little deck thing um under the under the trees there and so Cantrell gets me up there there's a there's a chair there Jeff Johnson's sitting there and he plops me down and I'm like kind of just assessing myself and um Jeff hands me a beer and he just looks out to the ocean. Now it's getting dark. And he's like, oh, so uh, what are you going to do now? And that was his way of saying, like, you know, you put all your eggs in this basket and you're fucked now. You know, and he was like, just if you knew, if you knew the man, you know. So uh, what are you going to do now? And I was like, fuck, I don't know. It was, he was a lot like my dad, actually. And... Um, the funny part is that the kid that ran the Bolex for me, that first movie, Thicker Than Water, was his, was his son, Jack. Right. <laughs> and Jack, I was like, Jack, let's make a surf movie. And he's like, all right. And um, and so, yeah, then we were off to the, you know, I went and got surgery and, it, and you know, got, you know, tried to start fixing my, my knee. And it wasn't that bad, really. They put a new ACL in there and. I healed up, and we were off to the races. I'd saved up money. I borrowed some money from Bob Hurley, and he's like, what are you going to make? I'm like, I don't know, Bob, but I, 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 I want to make something, you know, make a sure film. And so we went off. I think we filmed for about 18 months, and then and then made a, made a surf movie. And, and, yeah, then that was the beginning. And then I, and then I got re- – and then I was like, I love doing this. Like, you know, this is really fun to share – all these trips and kind of the way we experienced them in my eyes and and then that led to let's see that was yeah i've been doing films and documentary work uh, since then so it's over 20 years ago yeah
Chris Malloy, ladies and gentlemen. We do a deep dive into his film work, his current surf life, and his current farm life, actually, in part two next week. Um, this was just a really special day for me, hanging out with Chris on his property. He seems to have had a few distinct chapters in his life that didn't look anything like the previous chapters. And uh, the one that he's currently living seems every bit as cool and fulfilling and rewarding as traveling the globe as a professional surfer. So bravo, Chris. Glad to connect with you. Uh, listeners, this chat is also available on YouTube if you want to watch it. I've also posted a couple of little teaser clips on Instagram that are easy to share with friends if you want to share the show. That helps us a lot. Everything that Chris and I discussed is on surfsplendorpodcast.com. His films, his surf exploits, profile videos of him and his brothers from Yeti, whose filmmaking I love. Um, all of that is on surfsplendorpodcast.com. You can also find our entire archive of 455 past episodes. They are available for free thanks to our paid subscribers. So we don't lock down any premium content or anything like that. We just trust that if you enjoy the work, that you'll want to invest in the future of the show. So it's five bucks a month. You can cancel it at any time. Uh, you can set that up on our website, and it really does keep us going. So thank you very much. We also, by the way, have seven other shows that we produce and distribute. My voice is on two of those shows, Spit with Scott Bass and then The Grit with Chaz Smith. Both of those are weekly. And then among the other shows, um, each show kind of caters to a different subject matter within the surf world. So Board Design Exploration with Donald Brink. There's a surf history show with the Brewer Brothers. And uh, you can find all of it on surfsplendorpodcast.com and then subscribe to those shows in whatever podcast app you use. Follow us on Instagram at Surf Splendor, where we post updates every time a new episode goes live. So thank you very much. That is enough talking for me today. My name is David Scales for Surf Splendor. I'll be back with Chris Malloy next week for part two. But until then, get back into the ocean, share some waves, and as always, shred on. <laughs>